Welcome to Nutrier Performing Arts Stories. I'm Dwayne Burkhard. Nutrier has produced a lot of talented people who have gone on to work in Hollywood or New York City, but few of them can say that they've achieved success as a performer in both places. My guest today is one of those few. Over the last several decades, Beth Lane has appeared on stage in New York and Los Angeles and in numerous films and audiobooks. She has also produced three films and is making her directorial debut with her current project, Would You Hide Me?, a powerful documentary about two German farmers who hid Beth's mother and six siblings during the height of World War II. I am delighted to have her as my guest today. So, wow, Beth, welcome to Nutri Performing Art Stories. Well, thank you for having me, Duane. I was trying to figure out how to describe you in my intro there. And I think I'm just going to go with the omni-talented Beth Lane. <laughs> Does that work for you? It's very, very generous of you. It's very kind. <laughs> well, so normally with guests, I like to start with talking about Nutrier. But in your case, you're in the middle of something that is really important right now. So if you don't mind, I'd actually like to start with your current project, which is a documentary film called Would You Hide Me? And it is the absolutely riveting story of the seven Weber children who were hidden by Arthur and Paula Schmidt during World War II. Now, obviously, you have a very, very personal connection to this story because the youngest of the Weber children was your mother, right? Yes, that's correct. Well, how did you become aware of this story? And how did you reach the point where you wanted to tell it and share it in the way that you are now? Sure. Um, you know, I learned my mom was adopted uh, in 1969, I was six years old, and we had moved from downtown Chicago out to the suburbs. My mom had given birth to her third child, my younger sister, in 69. And, you know, an apartment on Roscoe was getting kind of tight. So we moved to Wilmette. And I came home from school one day. And, you know, I was the new girl, even though it was first grade, everyone had gone to nursery school together and kindergarten together. And I was the new girl and that was fine. But then there was another new girl who came and her name was Susan Berndt. And she was from Germany and she had told us that she was adopted. And I remember coming home saying, mom, mom, there's this new girl in school and she's from Germany and she's adopted. And mom said, well, you know, someone who's adopted. And I said, who, who? And my brother and I are guessing and guessing. And, you know, like we're just sitting in the kitchen table having whatever you have after school snacks. And, and I kept guessing my Baba and my Zeta. And my brother points to my mom and says, mom, it's you. And she said, that's right. I am. And I don't remember when we learned that she was a Holocaust survivor. She never, ever, ever referred to herself as a Holocaust survivor, as a refugee, as anything other than an American woman whose parents were my grandparents, Roz and Josh Spiegel. But we, somewhere in there, I learned that she was indeed a Holocaust survivor. I'm, I want to say closer to third grade or so, like in Hebrew school is when they started explaining some things to us. And then we might ask some questions, but she never wore it on her sleeve. It wasn't something that was hidden from us, but it was never talked about. And I think so much of that was because she didn't have very many memories 
you know, she was so young when she came to this country. I mean, I learned that she was adopted when she was six, which is, which is exactly the same age that she was when she came to this country. And so I think that as a child, you know, you keep what's good and you get rid of what's bad and you move forward. And the prevailing sentiment at the time when my grandparents adopted my mom was to sever ties with her biological siblings. My grandparents were advised by the Chicago Jewish Children's Bureau, uh, psychiatrists and so forth and social workers to sever ties. So eventually I learned that she had six other siblings, but that I would never meet them. I was told emphatically I would never, ever, ever meet them. And that did change in 1986 when my mom uh, reunited with her siblings. Uh, wow. What was that like for both you and her? <laughs> I mean, it was heavy. Uh, you know, 86, 1986, I was living in New York City. I was a young Broadway wannabe starlet and was very consumed with my own life. I remember I had done one year of graduate school after college down in Florida at the Oslo Theater. And she, I, I found out after the fact that she had had this reunion with her biological siblings. And I was kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> you, you did that without us? And like, without telling? Yeah. Hang on, mom. Can we go back to that? Yeah. And, <laughs> but then it's, it kind of seemed like since I was, you know, already launched from the nest and she was doing her thing. I don't know. I just kind of moved on, but clearly it never left me because I would say for the next 10 to 15 years, I would write about it. I would kind of fantasize about it in playwriting drafts. I would, you know, I, I've always dabbled with writing and I always, I, I tried writing about it. And I even wrote a play called The Groaning Board, which was about it. And I never liked the play. I, I always felt it was very therapeutic and it wasn't really for an audience. And, and then I took a stab at it again. I went back to graduate school and midlife. When my kids went to college, I said, wow. These theaters are fantastic. I took them on their, all their college tours and, and I wanted to teach at the university level. So I got myself into UCLA's program for um, theater uh, and got my master of fine arts there. And the first quarter of our program, we had to write a play. And I thought, well, is it cheating if I pull out this old dog? <laughs> uh, it's certainly something that I keep scratching. So let's give it a try. And this time it won't be a one person play. This time let's make it for more people. And maybe that will feel less narcissistic or whatever you want to call it. And um, and again, I hated the play. <laughs> like I just, it didn't feel, uh, I don't know. It just didn't feel worthy of the subject matter, to be honest. Yeah, it just wasn't in the right place yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and then in between my second and third year of graduate school, and subsequently I had begun to meet my uncle and aunts and, and my uncle, actually mom's eldest biological sibling, he and I did have a plan. We were going to go back to Germany together so I could see it through his eyes and, and he died. And not only was it devastating that he died because he just died too young. And, you know, I was finally at a place in my life where I could spend more time with him as an adult, especially since I didn't get to grow up with him. Right. And he was such an interesting, renowned physicist, fascinating person. And he gave me a lot of really wonderful life advice about all kinds of things, particularly 
religion. I am a Jewish woman who married a Presbyterian man and my uncle was raised as a Jewish man and he married a Catholic woman and they raised their children Presbyterian. And so he gave me a lot of um, comfort and and advice about how to navigate a mixed marriage, you know? And I think after he died, my mom decided that she wanted to go back to Germany for the first time ever ever, 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 ever. She never wanted to go back. As a matter of fact, in 1976, when I became a bat mitzvah, my parents asked me, do you want to have a party or you want to go to Europe? And I'm like, let's go to Europe. Like, that sounds cool. Like, anyone can have a party. Yeah. Like, wait, wait, Europe is an option? Right. Yeah. So we we went to Europe and I remember uh, we were, we spent most of our time in France and we had dipped our toes into Germany, to, I think, to really meet my grandparents because they were then taking me on to Israel or something. But there's a story, and I have vague memories of it, but it's more of a story that my dad was driving our little minivan to Dachau, and my mother said, turn around, don't don't go, I can't go. And, you know, there's no reason for me to question the story, I believe it, even if I don't have a, a, a visceral memory of it. Anyway, so... So my mother decides that she wants, after my uncle Alphonse passed away, she decides she wants to go back to Germany and she wants to meet the very wonderful historians, town historians uh, of the town where they were hidden, who had been helping my uncle do a lot of research. And my uncle had written this 40 page document called The Brief History of the Weber Siblings. And he had written it for the anniversary of the 50th reunion of their emigration to America. And so in 86, the one that I wasn't invited to or the one that I wasn't told about, mom and her siblings got together with a very few of the second generation. My sister had attended and my Aunt Gertrude's, two of her children had attended. Um, But none of the other kids in my generation, my other cousins, were invited. It was really a very private experience, I think, for the siblings. And, and then 10 years later, they did it again, and they invited absolutely everybody. And I remember rolling into Highland Park uh, to my mom's place in 1996, having just given birth to twins. You know, like how I got on that airplane and left the twins at home with my husband and brought our then, I guess, 22-month-old child <laughs> with me to this reunion. It's a big blur But it was for that occasion that my uncle had written this document. And I remember over the years trying to read the document, like truly trying to get through it and always kind of getting stuck. And then I suppose there was just this one day when my brain made space for all of it. My heart made space for all of it. And I took it all in, absorbed it. And and I said, this can't just stop here. This has to, this isn't for me. It's not even really for our family. This is for everybody and anybody who cared about humanity. And we we go to Germany. Mom decides she wants to go to Germany. My sister and I accompany her. My dad actually accompanied us as well. And my brother, um, unfortunately, was ill at the time. He couldn't join us. But we went back to the town uh, where they were hidden. And we were hosted by these town historians. And they had a surprise for us. And the surprise was they invited the grandson of the farmers to come and meet us. Of the Schmitz? Yes. Wow. So when that happened, I quite literally looked to my left and I looked to my right. And I am not like a big social media capture every moment kind of person. 
Um, I'm an actor. I'm not uh, a filmmaker. I am now, but at the time I wasn't. And I, I just said, I can't believe I'm in graduate school at UCLA, one of the very, very best film and television schools in the world. And I don't have a film crew here capturing this. I am meeting the grandson of the people who enabled my life to actually be. But then what happened is there was more of a reverse shot. It wasn't about me anymore. I looked at this man and I said, if your grandparents had gotten caught, you wouldn't be here either. Right. And when that moment occurred, it was just a game changer. Like life couldn't be the same anymore. It's kind of like giving birth to a child, you know, like your life is never the same again after you give birth to your first child. Right. And, uh, or your second or your third. And so that's what this was. It was, it was a birth of some kind that I could never deny it again. (laughs) Right. So I came running back to campus and thank goodness I was in between my second and third years of grad school because your third year, you have much more time for electives and so forth. And, and I started pounding on all the documentary professors doors. And I said, you guys, I know I'm a theater student, but you've got to let me into these film classes. You have to let me into these documentary classes. And they did. And they prepared me for my very first shoot, which was in March. And I had no control over the date. In March of 2018, Yad Vashem was honoring Arthur and Paula Schmidt in the Gardens of the Righteous. And Yad Vashem is the World Holocaust Memorial Center in Jerusalem. And we had all planned on going and we made a a pact, a deal with this grandson, like, we'll meet you in Jerusalem. And of course, this is a Christian man, not Jewish. So he wanted to, he actually, Yad Vashem always offers to come to the hometown of the next of kin of the righteous Gentile who is being honored. And uh, Arthur Schmidt III said, no, 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 no. Don't come to Hamburg. I will come to you. This must happen. This must happen in in Jerusalem, in your garden. We will come to you. So that was my first piece of principal photography. (laughs) And oh man, oh man, I didn't get to yell rolling. I didn't get to yell cut. It was just like fly by the seat of your pants. And thank goodness I had enough uh, wherewithal and stamina to hire a really solid crew and they caught what we needed to catch. And, you know, like any good documentarian, uh, you shoot over 200 hours of footage and you winnow it down to 90 minutes or whatever. So I think maybe we have 90 seconds of that four day shoot in the movie, but it's, it's, it's there and it's used quite efficiently, I think, and quite beautifully in a meaningful way. Well, wow. So there is a, a lot to unpack in that story. <laughs> and, and we're going to do that. Uh, but we're going to take a break first. Uh, folks, we are talking with actress, writer, director, and documentarian Beth Lane. And we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this film. And then we're going to go back in time to the earlier parts of her career and all the way back eventually to New Trier. So you're listening to New Trier Performing Arts Stories, and we'll be back. This episode of Nutria Performing Art Stories is brought to you by Gopto, a science fiction adventure story by Dwayne Burkhardt. The book has an average rating of 4.7 stars and is available on Amazon for $12.99 in paperback or just $4.99 in ebook format. To buy your copy today, just go to Amazon.com and search for the books of Dwayne Burkhardt. 
And we are back. We are talking with actress, writer, director, and producer Beth Lane. And Beth, before we leave your current film, Would You Hide Me Behind, I want to note something that you've written about the film, which is that you hope that the movie would provide an opportunity to strengthen the muscles of hope, compassion, empathy, and love. And I think that that is probably the most important thing that you and this film can give to all of us. And I am deeply hopeful that you get the opportunity to do that. Well, thank you. you. I I want to go back in time now and touch on what is my favorite Beth Lane performance. And then I'm going to ask you to tell us about what your favorite one is. I absolutely love Hollywood musical. (laughs) Anytime Hollywood makes fun of itself, I am always entertained. So... Um, tell us about your involvement in Hollywood Musical, how that happened. Was it as fun as it looked like it was to do? You know, <laughs> basically your memories of that time. Sure. Um, I, you know, I spent most of my adult years in New York, both in New York City and then in Westchester County, just outside of New York. Once we had kids and realized that it was really impossible to raise three kids in Manhattan or even Brooklyn. <laughs> um, and But I was always a member of the Barrow Group Theater Company. I sat on the board and I was an actor with them and um, uh, a gentleman named Alex Bach, a director there, uh, was also part of the company and Alex is a filmmaker and he, like I did, um, defected from New York to California. (laughs) We... I remember we got together for lunch one day. We were talking about a very, very different project. He asked me if he would, if I would please play the role of a therapist in a film that was a pretty dark, dark film. And I said, of course. And it was a beautiful script. I'm sorry it never uh, happened. Um, he even had a poster made, like the whole thing. And um, and then when Hollywood Musical came around. Uh, I remember reading the script and thinking, okay, this is cute, whatever. And, you know, anything for Alex, like I believe in him and he's great and let's make it happen. And um, I think we filmed some of the scenes in my house and like, we all just kind of, it was really barn raising. Like we all just kind of jumped in and, and he really, in many ways was a real role model for me in terms of how do you make an indie thing fly? How do you actually get it off the ground? Well, you commit, you just commit and you do it. And I will say that Hollywood musical, I hope becomes one of the most important cult musical movies ever. I do too. We worked so hard on that movie and literally could, he, he could not get it in anywhere. He could not get it screened at festival. He couldn't get it sold. I don't know what the distribution deal is, how it's being, I'm sure it's on Amazon, but like he just could not get arrested. And then two years later, La La Land swoops in and I'm sorry, but I just think Hollywood musical is the bee's knees over La La Land. (laughs) Well, well, I agree. And for those listeners who have not seen it, please Google it and see it because it is absolutely worth it. There are some beautiful performances in Hollywood, and not mine. There are some beautiful actors in in Hollywood musical that uh, really deserve. And and yours. And yours. (laughs) 
I had fun. I had fun. But no, there are some very, very talented people in that film. Yeah. So now we're going to back up again. And this is basically the opposite of the way my shows normally work. But we're going to go all the way back to Nutrier now and finish with what is normally one of my first questions, which is, how did your experience at Nutrier help you to prepare for your career? And then how did that help you go from there to, to do what you've done? Oh, I mean, there's no question in my mind that Nutria was absolutely like the pinnacle of performing arts and discipline and um, bar setting and, you know, so many things. I mean, if I back up, you know, my mother was a dance teacher. She ran a dance studio. She trained with a woman named Edna McRae downtown, who was, you know, just that was the Joffrey and the Juilliard of ballet in Chicago. And, and and you danced at Nutrier, did you not? I danced quite a bit at Nutrier. It's, I thought I remember that. Yeah, I was I was a really, really um, heavy dancer in terms of like most of my time was spent dancing. And so by the time I got to Nutrier, I had already gone to Interlochen for a couple of summers in Michigan. And certainly the discipline at Interlochen is, is pretty intense. I had already begun dancing downtown at Stone Cameron, Ruth Page and with Lou Conti. And, and I think it was even in seventh or eighth grade, I had joined uh, Joyce and Byrne Piven's Young People's Company. I was in the very the very first company of actors that Joyce and Byrne had put together. And that was a pretty starry group of, of actors in that group, Joan Cusack and some of the other kids were too young to actually be, you know, we were older, like John Cusack wasn't in, Jeremy Piven wasn't in because they were too young, but Shira Piven was in our company. And so by the time I got to New Trier, you know, I... I really felt like, well, how much time do I really want to spend at Nutra? I have all these other really great things going on. And the Pivens got me my first movie role in, in a film that was shot by Tony Bill downtown and stuff like that. And I had the extraordinary good fortune of being in Suzanne Adams' homeroom advisory. Oh, wow. So not only did I get to train with Suzanne as an actor, but she was my advisor. Oh, man. And I, I know that everyone has like deep, deep reverence for Suzanne. But when you're raised by a mother who's a dance teacher and also your teacher, and then you get to be in the homeroom with someone like Suzanne, who's also your teacher... Right. There's a there's a familiarity of relationship that, yes, you better do good because you have to prove to them that you are worthy. But I was never afraid of her. And I think the combination of support and love and genuine care from an artist like Suzanne Adams to somebody like me who I couldn't really pigeonhole myself. I was a dancer, but then I was training vocally with Shirley Calloway and and then training with Suzanne. And so for me, in many ways, I kind of had this identity crisis about, am I a dancer? Am I an actor? Am I a singer? Like, what am I? And then I got involved with Jim Khanna. And then I was on like different legislative boards at Nutria. Like, I, who am I? And she just always allowed me to be whatever I was doing in that moment. You know, I I think the beauty of what Suzanne, and obviously she comes up in every podcast, but 
I think that one of the most beautiful and most important things that you mentioned there is that the essence of what she did at, at the beginning and the end of the day, it was about love. Mm-hmm. It was about the love that she had for her job, but it was really about the love that she had for all of us and the mission that she was on to make us better students, better actors, and better people. Better better people. And and she did that yes. 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was the fact that she made us better people was really probably the most important thing and impressive thing that she accomplished. Yes. And she did that through theater. Yes. Which is amazing. So, okay. So what's your favorite performing experience at Nutrier and why? Oh, golly. Oh, my gosh. That's hard. That's like picking a kid. <laughs> like, how do you pick a kid? I mean... They were also very different. And also I didn't do as many productions as most of the performing arts students did because I was busy downtown right. and I was busy in other places. I certainly had a blast. I mean, I, I was also very lucky. My freshman year, the very first play I auditioned for was Robert Boyle was directing Inherit the Wind. And here this little young freshman girl gets to come in and hang out with all these juniors and seniors and be in inherit the wind of all plays right uh, i mean right the, and and with dr boyle and with dr boyle yes and so i had the wonderful experience to be directed by him three times while i was at new chair oh wow that's pretty cool and it was a wonderful experience each time cool well that's wonderful i remember coming to visit new Trier, uh, many years later and coming right dr boyle it's good to see you he's like who are you i'm like <laughs> 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 you know, um, yeah, yeah, see, <laughs> so he wouldn't have had that problem with me because I would have said, Hey, remember the kid who had a script in his back pocket for every tech and dress? <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, yeah, how are you? Right, yeah. right. But I mean, I certainly loved the giant musicals. I absolutely loved, uh, we did South Pacific and we did Music Man. And, but I, I cherish the smaller things, uh, even though it was on the main stage, I cherish doing Our Town. I can't remember if I played Mrs. Gibbs or Mrs. What's Your Bucket. Mary Ryan and I played opposite each other, peeling, you know, potatoes or green beans or whatever is that were shocking to talk about our children in our town. Um, and that was great fun. But honestly, if I were if I were to pick a performance, it wouldn't have been for an audience. The performances that I cherished absolutely the very, very most were the ones we did in acting class. You are the second person to say that. How interesting. Oh my gosh. The ones we did in acting class have burrowed themselves into my heart until the end of time. And 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 I think so much of that was just because you could hear a pin drop. Like we all just had so much respect for each other. Right. And that was because of Mrs. Adams, because of the environment that she made and 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 even just the different uh, imagination exercises that she would put us through. But I I got to, as a teenager, do the elephant man. I mean, like, who gets to do that? Right. Who who does that? I mean, who gets to do that? Yes. And and I got to play Mary Queen of Scots and like, you know. Okay. Well, I would have paid money to see you play Mary Queen of Scots. (laughs) Just to be clear. (laughs) Well, I did get to, it's, Pretty funny how things come full circle. When I was at UCLA a couple of years ago, um, they did Mary Stewart 
And so I'm too long in the tooth to play Mary Queen of Scots at that point, but I did get to play Queen Elizabeth. Wow. And that was awfully fun to come back to that kind of, it wasn't the Maxwell Anderson, but it, it was very fun to come back to that story and, and experience that again. Well, it's very interesting to me that you would say that it was the acting class performances because, well, for those listeners who listened to our show on Shakespeare a couple of weeks ago, you know that my favorite production experience was the 1982 production of Twelfth Night. But I would also say that my favorite performance experience actually did grow out of an acting class assignment from Mrs. Adams. And in an upcoming episode, a future guest and I uh, then got to take that performance experience out on the road, as it were, with forensics. And anyway, I'll get to tell that story in a few weeks, but that did come out of an acting class assignment. So you're right. At those moments in those classes really were special because mm-hmm. everyone did have this incredible level of respect for one another. And so those moments are about sharing the craft with one another and inhabiting the spirit of another character and, you know, just sharing that gift. Yes. Um, so anyway, folks, uh, we have been talking with the truly omni-talented Beth Lane. And Beth, I am so hopeful that I am able to go out to a theater soon and see your upcoming film, Would You Hide Me? And again, for any of you who still haven't seen Hollywood Musical, you really do need to go online and find it (laughs) and see it. So, Beth, thank you so much for being here on the show today. I had a great time, and I wish you the absolute best in the future. Thank you so much, Duane. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Nutria Performing Arts Stories is a copyrighted production of Narratives Incorporated. It is written, directed, produced, and edited like a guy who had to loop a ton of his own audio this week by yours truly, Dwayne Burkhardt. For more information, or to suggest a guest or sponsor for our podcast, please email info at NutrierPADStories.com. And join us next week for another special WNTH edition of Nutrier Performing Arts Stories. Our guest will be sports journalist and former WNTH station manager, Dave Merritt. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time.